0: Great news from Rocket Mortgage. You could unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash-out refinance today. In fact, in the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. That means you could unlock thousands of dollars. And with Rocket Mortgage, you could unlock all that cash in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up because nobody knows how long these low rates will last. Put your hard-earned money to work, make your life better, build a home office, remodel your kitchen, or simply save that cash for a rainy day. Today's rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 3.25%, 3.48% APR, so you can lock in a great low monthly payment. When you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call eight three three eight rocket today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. That's eight three three eight rocket or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rocket.
1: Rates current as of 12 12 21. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50
0: states. and less consumer access. Call 800-490-1233 for disclosures and cost information.
2: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signs legislation protecting parental rights in education.
3: We will make sure that parents can send their kids to school to get an education not an indoctrination.
4: We'll take a closer look. He is defending the rights of parents and just ask Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia whether or not that is something that is appreciated by voters in his state.
2: Ukrainian forces hold their ground. The
5: Ukrainians have stopped the Russian advance cult.
2: While Ukrainian Christians pray. And they have a bomb shelter
6: in the basement of their church. They organize eight hours of praise and
2: worship. All this and more. I'm Georgine Rice. I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. For weeks now, elite media outlets and their allies on the left have done their best to scare the nation about a piece of legislation in Florida. They call it the Don't Say Gay Bill, wildly misrepresenting the content. The actual title of the bill, Parental Rights and Education, does a far better job of representing what the legislation is actually all about. In the face of all the opposition and the overheated rhetoric, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill on Monday this week.
3: We will continue to recognize that in the state of Florida, parents have a fundamental role in the education, health care, and well being of their children. We will not move from that. I don't care what corporate media outlets say. I don't care what Hollywood says. I don't care what big corporations say. Here I stand. I'm not backing down. And so in Florida, we will make sure that parents can send their kids to school to get an education, not an indoctrination.
2: There are a number of lessons to be learned here, not the least of which is courage in the face of very vocal opposition. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast.
4: The governor of Florida has signed into law This bill that made its way through Florida's legislature to great controversy, it prevents official instruction in gender sexuality and other issues related to that in grades K through three, including references to transgenderism and gender identity. And furthermore, it would ban inappropriate instruction on these themes for older grades as well. As you can imagine, the cultural mavens are not happy with this. Patricia Mazai writing for The Times, tells us, quote, The law could have far-reaching implications to children in other grades, and without any connection to LGBTQ issues, it will allow parents to opt out of counseling and mental health services and to sue school districts for any perceived violations. Districts will have to cover the cost of those lawsuits. End quote. Well, after all, who otherwise would pay the cost of those lawsuits? Now, you have the left, and particularly the LGBTQ movement, saying that this is backwards, it is repressive, it is oppressive, It cannot stand. It must be unconstitutional. And furthermore, what this reveals more than anything else is the fact that the moral revolutionaries have been counting on the public schools as one of the major engines for forcing their ideology upon the American people. And that is not conspiracy talk. That is in the official goals and in the traceable actions of the LGBTQ movement. And furthermore, in the long march through American institutions, that movement has been tremendously and disproportionately successful, not only in Hollywood, but also in higher education. And that has been filtered down into the public schools, and that has not happened by accident. And here you have the governor of Florida signing a bill he knows is going to be challenged in court. And by the way, politically, that is a no-lose situation for Ron DeSantis. If the law stands, he has signed it. His signature is on it. If it is challenged, he is defending the rights of parents. And just ask Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia whether or not that is something that is appreciated by voters in his state. This is a no-lose situation for Ron DeSantis, and that's true both in the state of Florida and at the national level. And more elected politicians need to learn this lesson. That lesson needs to be learned by the Republican governors in the states of Utah and Indiana who have vetoed legislation that, for example, would have limited girl sports to biological females. Governors get a clue. There's going to be a lot to watch in the immediate aftermath of DeSantis signing the bill. For one thing, watch corporations, watch larger cultural institutions as they seek to resist this. Look at many other institutions, including higher education. Just look at the activist community. Florida is going to be ground zero for this fight. And the Florida legislature and Florida's governor appear to be quite willing to enter into that fight. And that just gets to another issue that Christians need to recognize. Given the steamroller with which moral progressivism is proceeding in our society, any pushback is going to be costly. Any pushback is going to be controversial. And any policy that actually makes a difference is going to be hated. It's going to be challenged, but it also becomes an illuminating moment in society. If you are against this bill, what would you put in its place? Your answer to that question is going to be extremely important and incredibly revealing. And the political leaders in Florida have figured that out.
2: Meanwhile, we continue to see news footage of Russian forces bombing Ukraine. And while the physical buildings are being destroyed and innocent lives are lost, the Ukrainian forces have been holding their ground in the face of Ukraine's unexpected opposition. Russia announced they're pulling back their forces around Kyiv. Ukraine's President Zelensky skeptically commented, and I quote, "Ukrainians are not naive people. We can say that the signals are positive, but those signals do not drown out the explosions or Russian shells." End quote. Well, the adage from Ronald Reagan comes to mind: "Trust but verify," or perhaps today. Distrust, but verify. Retired General Jack Keene joined Kevin McCullough from AM 570, the mission in New York City.
1: We started hearing earlier this week that Russia was pulling some of their troops back. Is that true? And from what you're seeing on the ground, what does it look like to you is happening?
5: Well, uh, Russia mentioned this in concert with the negotiations that were taking place in Turkey between the Russian delegation and the, and the Ukraine delegation. And in our judgment, they were making this and as stated in their words, as a sign of goodwill that they were going to be pulling back from Kyiv to demonstrate goodwill. And so that the Ukrainians uh, would be able to, uh, they would be able to earn the Ukrainians trust. Okay. And that's just a bold faced lie as most of the things uh, that the Russians put out are. What has happened is the Ukrainians have stopped the Russian advance cold and are in a phase now of conducting counterattacks and taking towns back around Kyiv. And for almost a month, the Russians have been trying to bring their artillery down and surround the capital of Kyiv so they could obviously decimate it and topple the government. They have not been able to ever get that in place because the Russians motorized brigades that are along that axis have prevented it. And that is that that's the harsh reality of what has taken place. The Russians have failed here. It's not that they're offering a concession as a sign of goodwill and they're pulling troops out of there. Now, are there troops leaving? Yes, they have been going in and out, for a couple of weeks. And the reason is because they're so severely damaged that they have to pull them back uh, to the belt, uh, to cross the Belarus border and make a decision. Can they just put people in and replace the unit and replace the things that are destroyed, or do they have to actually reconstitute the unit? Hmm. And, and two things have happened. There's been some reconstitution, and some others are so decimated that they have put them on trains and literally sent them home. So, but it has nothing to do with a withdrawal of forces, as stated uh, dealing with the negotiations. This has to do with the Ukrainians handing them a defeat. And, and but their frontline trace of forces are still in place surrounding Kyiv, and they're still bombarding it. And we don't see any wholesale withdrawal of forces from Kyiv, uh, other than the replacement of forces that are, to use a military term, are no longer combat effective. We don't see any movement of forces out of Kyiv to redeploy them someplace else in Ukraine. And then the other pattern line uh, of lies that the Russians have is that looks at our primary focus has always been the Donbass region, and that is where our major effort is. Well, that's not true. The majority of their forces have always been in the north, not in the south. And their main effort was clearly to take the capital and topple the government. It's unlikely they're going to be able to do that. Uh, we don't know if they're going to continue to grind this out, which is Russian uh, doctrine, right. and continue the bombardment and kill people in the capital and can, and try to wear the Ukrainians down. And the Russians believing, you know, time is is on their side in doing that.
1: Let's talk about uh, reinforcing equipment. Um, Where do we stand with the help that is coming from the West, whether it be the U.S. or the other NATO countries, in terms of equipment and supplies that they've been asking for for close to a month now?
5: Well, it's very frustrating. They've never got the MiGs that they wanted, and and I think there's ways certainly to have made that happen. They've been asking for air defense systems, uh the, the long range air defense system, some of which they have, and and they've been very useful against Russian air power and also against cruise missiles. But for a couple of weeks now they haven't they haven't received them either. And they want tanks. And the reason for this, Kevin, is everything has changed in in Ukraine. The Ukrainians believe they have an opportunity to win. They want tanks not to defend. They want tanks to go on the offense, just to continue to take territory. Away, and here's my problem with the Biden administration. And I think I think the U.S. underlying strategy from the beginning, going all the way back to 2021 in March, when the when the Russian troops showed up on Ukraine's border with 70,000, and then again in the fall with 150,000, and then finally in February with the invasion, I think the underlying strategy of the U.S. during that entire period was not to provoke Putin. Now, here's here's what's really horrible. Uh, I think this is what's going on. United States strategy has not changed at all, trying to give arms to the Ukrainians. But Ukraine has stopped the Russians cold. They have an opportunity to crush this army that's in the field in Ukraine. And what we should be doing is trying all out to... To help them do that and state that as purpose and mission but what is their real purpose and mission that's unstated they fear putin losing they fear putin losing in the event that he will take some action that's very provocative as a result of that
2: coming up christians in ukraine in prayer They
5: have a bomb
2: shelter in the basement of their church. They organized eight hours of praise and worship. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. The
1: Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's pepperdine.edu slash SPP.
2: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As the nation of Ukraine fights for its very existence, there have been some captivating windows into how God is at work in this war-torn nation. There are a number of Christian ministries who really have, in recent years, begun their work in Ukraine. And although these are young ministries, they're serving as instruments in God's hand as the bombs come down. One such ministry is Intercessors for Ukraine. I think you'll enjoy my conversation with David Kubal, president of Intercessors for America. David, join me on my program here in Portland. How did Intercessors for Ukraine come about? Yeah, you know, Georgina, it was really a miracle from God. Back, uh, we we're seeing a lot
6: about the Biden administration and Hunter Biden and his involvement in Ukraine. And, and really, it was back when all of this surfaced with the Russia collusion and, and that whole storyline that we were approached by a group of men who want, from Ukraine who wanted to start a ministry of mobilized people praying for the nation. And we thought it was miraculous you know, that they would reach out to us. We weren't looking to start intercessors for Ukraine, but we wound up with them, and we prayed with them, and walked with them, and supported them financially for a number of years, and their ministry really flourished. And little did we know that now, at this point in time, their ministry would be ever more important than it ever was, as we see them with a very mature, mobilized network of prayer in the country of Ukraine.
2: One of the things we'll talk about um, a little later in our conversation is not only how people are praying for Ukraine and how you're connecting with Ukrainians who are in leadership and are facing this very difficult set of circumstances. But some of the answers that you have witnessed to prayers that are being offered, I think we sometimes pray about a distant concern and have no idea how those prayers are being answered in the lives of individuals. We may never meet. You've had the opportunity to communicate and have ongoing communication with those who are crying out for uh, intercessors and are also expecting that people around the world are praying for them and that God will show up.
6: Yeah, you're so right. And, you know, I think that's the thing that fuels our passion to pray even deeper is when we see and hear about answered prayer. And and I got to tell you, the, the miraculous stories that are coming um, to us from our partners in Ukraine are amazing. Here's a couple of, of the examples there were a uh, a number of Russian planes full of paratroopers that were scheduled to come, drop their paratroopers in the eastern side of Ukraine. And um, the prayer wall in that, that area of the country was alerted, and they began to pray and intercede. And so, Georgina, I, I mean, this is a true story. You're not going to believe what happened, but these Russian paratroopers— jumped out of the plane, and as their parachutes deployed, they were floating to the ground, a wind came and literally blew the entire regiment from Ukraine territory literally back into Russian territory. Another example, in the southern part of the country, uh, in a naval port, there was a Russian military boat that was attempting to land and deploy their army. Once again, for four days, a storm battered that part of the Black Sea in a way that these soldiers were unable to be deployed. Another example is one of our leaders is in a town uh, called Dnipro, which is just about 50 kilometers north of the uh, nuclear power plant Shabar Poritza that uh, has been taken over by the Russians. And and they have a bomb shelter in the basement of their church. It was built right after World War II. And, and so this past Sunday, they organized eight hours of praise and worship. And over the previous weeks, their air uh, siren of bombs being potentially dropped on Dnipro had gone off multiple times uh, each day. But during this eight hours of praise and worship, uh, these sirens did not go off once. It wasn't until about 30 minutes after that eight hours of praise and worship when they were no longer praising God that the sirens went off. Uh, for the first time in eight hours. So, if so you've been those are pray- just a couple of examples. <laughs> yeah. If you've been praying yeah. for
2: Ukraine, this is encouraging to hear examples of how God is answering. Um, for Ukrainian leaders, it has to be incredibly challenging to oversee congregations, to minister to your community under very difficult circumstances. What are you witnessing as the greatest challenge for those in leadership and how might we pray for them?
6: Yeah, you're so right. You know, to be the body of Christ, to be a pastor at a time of war when your country is seeing so much violence is, is terrible. I mean, one of our leaders in Ukraine, he's a pastor in the city of Sumy. Uh, his associate pastor chose to stay behind to help minister to folks, and he was killed uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It It's just, it, it's terrible. So the, the bravery and the understanding that is needed in this day is incredible. One of our pastors, you know, in the East, in the West here, we call them refugees, but those traveling from the eastern part of the country to the western part of the country, these this pastor calls them guests as they pass through his church, as he is able to meet their needs. And um, we've provided a million meals with a, a bunch of different organizations to um, people within the Ukraine, delivering them through our pastors there, and they're able to meet the physical needs. But, Georgina, I think one of the things that I think people need to understand to pray about this situation is they need to understand the mindset of the Russians the mindset of President Putin in order to effectively know how to pray, to understand that you really have to go back centuries and understand the history of the czars within uh, this part of the globe. This all started with uh, this uh, gentleman named Muscovoy in the 1200s, and in the Encyclopedia of Britannica. Now, Christians, everybody listen to this. Described this ruler as the Grand Principality that started this concept, and I'm using my quote fingers here, gathering the Russian lands. So this Grand Principality, Muscovoy, started this concept of this Russian domination of this part of the globe of gathering the Russian lands. And that led to all of these czars, uh, Ivan the Terrible, uh, Nicholas the Great. And all of these czars were very repressive in the way they controlled their civilization, and they were very restricting in things like religious freedoms. And that is the mindset of President Putin. He sees himself as a continuation of these czars, And those of us who have a spiritual mind understand spiritual territorial
2: powers. That's what we're seeing work its way out in the natural in this day. What do you say about and to the Russian people who are essentially victims to the decisions that their leaders are making and how we as believers ought to consider them and how we might pray for them as well?
6: Yeah, I mean, we've got to pray that the citizens of Russia rise up and put an end to this regime, this um, powerful force that has been over this nation for years and years. And, and you know, of course, we wouldn't want to just be violent or angry indiscriminately against those Russians in the States because we don't know exactly where they're at. But the fact of the matter is, is that their leader is, is tyrannical. Their yes. leader is committing war crimes at this moment in time and he needs to stop. And the Russian people, they need to understand what their leader is doing, and things need to be put in place in that country, and then in the UN, in the European Union, and all of those forces need to come together and tell this man to stop this unprovoked aggression. Coming up.
7: When we live out the significance God has for our life, Yes, we might not have as much material things, but inside and in fulfillment and peace and love and joy, there's going to be nothing that compared to that.
2: Tim Tebow, when the Christian Outlook continues in a moment. Stay with us.
7: Hi, it's Mike
0: Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com.
2: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. We've all wondered, what is God's purpose for my life? What does he want me to do? Well, these questions are common, whether you're 19 years old and brand new in the faith, or like me, you're just a few more years down the path. Whether you're young or old, rich or poor, and whatever degree of talent you may or may not have, God has something for you to do. I think that's a pretty fair summary of Tim Tebow's new book. He talked about it with Eric Metaxas. The book is titled Mission Possible. What is the what is the idea behind the book? You've written a number of books before, so
4: what is this one about?
7: This is honestly something Eric that has been on my heart for quite a while when you know that you have a mission, you know that you have purpose, and we know that the mission's possible, you have encouragement. Encouragement to do what? To go beat LeBron James at basketball? No, that's not what I'm telling you. That's not what I'm telling people. But what I am trying to encourage and tell people is that it is possible for every single one of us to truly have a life that counts to live out the mission that God has given us. And it is possible because what he did on the cross. And you know, I I look at, and honestly something else that was on my heart is I look at the statistics of what's happening in our society of a third of people are saying that they're lonely most of the time or all the time. Over 60% of 18 to 34 year olds say there's no one in the world that believes in them. 12% of our time is spent in some form of comparison. And in 2020 alone, between between 10 and 24 year olds, over 6,600 committed suicide. Like, these numbers are staggering, right? They're staggering. And I don't think the answer is necessarily just more friends. I don't think the, the answer is necessarily just more education, although I do believe in community and I do believe in education. But what I believe more than that is purpose, is meaning, is significance, that we have to be able to encourage, especially the next generation that you're not going to find all the answers in money, fame, and power, which is a lot of what the world is going to tell you you need to have, is you need to have more praise, more promotion, more platforms, and that's going to give you all of these these benefits of, of success. And I'm going to say, you know what what happens if you have all of them? It's still not going to fulfill you. But when we live out the mission, when we live out the purpose, when we live out the meaning, when we live out the significance God has for our life. Yes, we might not have as much material things, but insight and in fulfillment and peace and love and joy is going to be there's going to be nothing that compared to that. And so I want to encourage people that we can truly have a life that counts by living out the mission that God has given us.
4: What are some of the things that someone can do? They say, I, I want my life to count. You need a relationship with God. Number one, it's like that's the key. But um, what, what do you say?
7: Well, it's a fantastic point. Number 1, I want people to know that God loves them and God wants to be in relationship with them. He wants to have a personal, intimate, real relationship with them. And not only does he want you to have a relationship with him, he also has good works for you to do. We learn that in Ephesians 2:10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So before we were ever born in Christ Jesus, God has his his in his workmanship has designed a plan for us. And also that group of workmanship is the word poema, which could also be translated masterpiece. So we understand that is in Christ Jesus, we are a masterpiece and God has good works for us to do. So I want people to have, walk in confidence that, you know what, in Christ Jesus, they're a masterpiece in God's eyes and there are good works for them to do. So I want people to, to have confidence, but I also want people to know that they have a mission. You see, when you know that God it loves you and has good works for you to do you know that you have a mission that you have purpose and I'll encourage people not just in the macro level because I think we all have the same mission and that's to love the Lord your God with our heart soul mind and strength to love your neighbor as ourselves. but I think in the micro we all have unique missions your mission is different than mine Eric and we all have unique missions you know might happen when i met a boy with with his feet on backwards in the jungles of the philippines um because he was born with his feet on backwards and because of that he was viewed as cursed less than insignificant he was a throwaway to his village and i knew that day that god put it on my heart he's not a throwaway to god and he better not be a throwaway to me and i knew that day per, that sports wasn't the most important thing anymore that what i was supposed to do was fight for boys and girls like him all around the world
4: you know, you've been faithful to that and you know that it gives you joy. It's not like hard, miserable work. It gives you joy to do this. And that's, you know, people are looking for joy, but this is how you find it.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I want to encourage people. Yes, it brings you joy, but it doesn't mean that it is. It's easy. It's hard. It's it's hard work. It's going to be frustrating, disappointing. But but when you know you're living out your mission and you're calling and your purpose, there's joy even in the midst of sorrow. There's joy even in the midst of frustration there's joy even in the midst of pain you know that's what we talk about is is that there's there's purpose uh, even in the resistance that there's purpose in the present that you it might not be where you want to go but even before you get to that place you can have purpose in your life you can have purpose in your nine to five in your job in your occupation purpose isn't about one day you can have purpose with every every breath we have means we have a chance for purpose
2: for the complete conversation of Tim Tebow with Eric Metaxas, go to ChristianOutlook.com. Coming up, questions about God. Ultimately, Christianity
8: is not about Christians, it's about Christ.
2: When the Christian Outlook returns, in a moment. Stay with
8: us.
1: The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu SPP. That's pepperdine.edu SPP.
2: We believe in God the Father.
4: We believe in Jesus Christ. We
2: believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Questions about God. Lots of people have them. Some are simply engaging in casual conversation. But for others, there's an earnestness, a sense of urgency. Remember the scribe in the Gospel of Mark of whom Jesus said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Yes, there are many questions people have about God. But John Hopper, our next guest, has recognized that there are some questions that are asked over and over again. That's why he wrote, Questioning God, Answers to Questions Worth Asking. John was a recent guest on my program here on KPDQ in Portland. What evidence do we have to know that God is real, and how do we prove that he exists?
8: Yeah, so I think there's a number of different pieces of evidence. I'll I'll share one of them today. And if you were to go into a a room that uh, was highly organized, things were just really put in their place. And um, you could tell it wasn't just sort of strewn all around the room, but, but things were just very neat and tidy you would assume that there was an intelligent being behind that, that it didn't just sort of fall into place that way. Well, when we look at the universe and we begin to discover how remarkably fine-tuned it is, and so by fine-tuning, for example, I mean take gravity, for example. If gravity was slightly more, then all the uh, planets would have collapsed on themselves. If it was slightly less, they would have they'd sort of just spread out and never coalesced in the first place. And that fine-tuning is remarkably like – it, it has to be just as it is. And that's the case for a number of, sort of physical constants throughout the universe. They all have to be just as they are for there to be any conscious life in the universe. Now, that's, to me, like a, a room that you've walked into that's really neat and organized. Mm-hmm. It, it cries out for sort of an, an intelligent uh, creator behind it.
2: Now, many people say that they don't believe in God because of science. What you've just described mm. suggests that there are elements in science that do just the opposite. But what's your advice when dealing with a situation like this that say that a person who probably hasn't delved as deeply into science as they might um, might seem uh, suggests that science is essentially a disproving that God exists or could mm. exist?
8: Yeah, you know, if somebody makes that sort of claim to me, I kind of want to find out exactly you know, why they think that one mm-hmm. piece of science actually would exclude God. Sometimes people just say that off the, the top of their head, but they don't really have an example for that. So I, I like to sort of discover that, first of all. But, you know, one of the things that when they do surveys of scientists, and I'm talking about elite scientists across the world, these elite scientists do not believe that science and religion are at fundamental odds with one another. Now, it is true that scientists are more likely to be atheists than non-scientists. But if they're asked if this is because there's a fundamental you know, conflict between the two, 85% of the time they'll say no. So scientists themselves don't see a fundamental conflict. They're not so sure why we should be doing that in the name of, of science. Now, I think one of the issues, Georgine, is that um, people think that because scientists discovered things that that sort of displaces God it doesn't displace God. It just shows us how God made something. So, um, you know, if we sort of discover uh, say, there's a a pot that's boiling on the stove and we sort of discover certain things about sort of boiling water and the molecules and how fast they move when it's boiling, that doesn't do away with the fact that there was a person who put the pot on the stove to begin with. So so, uh, just because we've discovered how things work and science shows us those things doesn't displace God.
2: Uh, you also discussed the the notion that there are people who don't believe in God because they feel that their life is good without Him. Should mm-hmm. we convince those people that it isn't true? And, and what approach would you recommend?
8: Yeah. Well, I probably wouldn't say, no, your life isn't good <laughs> God. So I don't know how well that would work. But uh, I think um, sometimes people don't realize how necessary God is for the things that are important to them. So, for example, most people want purpose in their life. Uh, they don't want this, everything they do to be sort of worth nothing. But if we're just cosmic accidents, if we're just sort of what the sort of the box spilled out, um, uh, then how can we say we have purpose? So um, if you just sort of knocked over a box full of Scrabble pieces and they fell on the ground, you probably wouldn't look at those peeps, pieces and say, What's the purpose of those pieces on the ground? You say, That's just what knocked out of the box, you know, it's just the way they are. And so it would be for us. We literally wouldn't have purpose. Or take love, for example, if there's no God who made us to be loving and to love, then we're just, when we just say we love something, we love our child or we love a friend, we're really just having a chemical reaction towards them, which is biological machines that are responding to our environment. It really takes there being a God for us to, again, love or to be lovable. So there's a lot of things that uh, sort of we take for granted that, that would become very thin if there wasn't a God. And so I like to try to help people say, you know, there's a lot of things that you hold on to in life, like love and reason and purpose and justice. And all of those things require there to be a God.
2: Sometimes people question their faith because they believe God has disappointed them. They had certain expectations. Mm -hmm. God didn't meet those expectations and that produces a struggle. How do you address a person who rejects God out of disappointment or Expectations that were perhaps inconsistent with what God's intentions might have been,
8: yeah, yeah, well, you know everybody's story in regards to pain and suffering is different, and so I'm always really careful to listen to people's stories mm-hmm. sometimes when they they make a claim that you know uh, how can there be a God if there's so much pain and suffering and they you know they they really aren't looking for an answer, <laughs> so to that question in particular, they're wanting to know whether you'll listen. To their story of pain and suffering.
2: Now, one of the uh, areas that you also address in the 15 questions that you pose in the book, the fact that Christians are often accused of being hypocrites, that's probably an accusation that fits fairly well. Well, if the accusation mm-hmm. is true, why should anyone believe in Christianity?
8: Well, if we dismiss Christianity because Christians are hypocrites, essentially we have to dismiss Every worldview and every person, because every parent, every
2: politician,
8: everyone—it doesn't matter every who <laughs> right? you are—you have a certain standard, and and no one lives up even, you know, to their own standard perfectly. So, um, so if we're if we're sort of measuring hypocrites simply by people who can't live up perfectly to their own standard, then then certainly we would be dismissing Christians as well as others. So, you know, I think what's what's more important is to uh, to look at not just what Christians are, sort of how Christians behave, although I I don't think that's unimportant, that you think it's important, Um, but to look rather at what they say to be true, particularly if what they say to be true is based on what Scripture has to say, and looking at that instead, because ultimately Christianity is not about Christians. It's about Christ. Coming up... If we're willing to begin to put what the Bible has to say into practice, Jesus says that we'll begin to see that it is from
2: God. More of Questioning God in the final segment of The Christian Outlook. Stay with us.
0: Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to Daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's Daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's Daybreakinsider.com.
2: Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we engage with people who have questions about God, one of the most predictable questions or accusations we hear is what about the hypocrites? Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Besides admitting that we often are guilty as charged, how should we respond? Let's catch a few more minutes of my conversation with John Hopper, talking about this most helpful book, Questioning God. Now, as a Christian, when we're confronted by that accusation, what's the best way to respond? Because you can't say, well, no, no, we're not.
8: That's right. We can just admit to it, say, yeah, I, I'm one of those that don't live up perfectly to what God would have to say, and you sort of admit to that and sort of move on from that point. You know, if you went to a doctor and the doctor told you, hey, your, your lungs are really not in good shape, you're smoking, you need to stop smoking, and then you would sort of left the doctor's appointment and you, and you saw the doctor take a smoke, you might say, man, what a hypocrite, and you'd be right in some ways, but that doesn't change the rightness of the advice. Even though we might say someone is a hypocrite, we still need to look at sort of what's being said and is it worthy of of consideration and worthy of follow.
2: Well, let's go to the source. What makes the Bible an authentic text?
8: Well, I think there's really three big questions that surround the scripture and whether we consider it reliability. The first is this authenticity, like is what we have today what was originally written? But we have really good evidence that shows that it has been, Copied and preserved very well over the centuries and over the last couple thousand years. And we have that through uh, many, many ancient manuscripts that we can compare with one another. So I think we can say it's authentic. Then we have to ask the question well, is it accurate? Maybe it's been copied well, but it's just full of make believe stories. And what we do there is we simply need to look at sort of history and does history corroborate what we see in the Bible? Are the people, the places, the events uh, mentioned elsewhere? And consistently, we see they are mentioned elsewhere and that the Bible is corroborated. So we have, for example, seven non-Christian writers within the first hundred years after Jesus that speak about Jesus, that he was crucified, for example, or that he was sort of did ministry in Judea, that he even did miracles. All those things are corroborated by people who weren't Christians. So I think we can say, well, it's not only authentic, but it's accurate. And then the last question is, well, maybe it's just history that's been recorded well, but why should we believe it's from God? The answer there is threefold. First of all, if the Bible is good history, then there are lots of miracles and lots of fulfilled prophecy. (laughs) um, And those things point to the fact that this book is a book from from God, not from from man. So these are sort of the first two points. And then I think the third one is, and, and Jesus even speaks of this, if we're willing to begin to put what the Bible has to say into practice. Jesus says that we'll begin to see that it is from God. We'll see the worth, we'll see the value of it.
2: Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. For more of my conversation with John Hopper on questioning God, go to ChristianOutlook.com. And while you're at the site, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Charlie Richards, David Pouchon, Mike Cook, Alex Perez, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us next time for The Christian Outlook.
1: But it flew away from her reach, so she ran away in her sleep.
0: If you need to know the law to advance your career in the healthcare industry, but you're not a lawyer, we can help. Texas A&M School of Law offers a Master of Jurisprudence with a focus on health law, policy, and management. It's specifically designed to help non-lawyers like you navigate the legal issues facing this heavily regulated industry. Gain the legal skills you need to advance your healthcare career from one of the most respected law schools in the nation. Visit law.tamu.edu/mjur to learn more.